0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand. I'm your host, Brian Bikey, and joining me again tonight, we have Kenny and Ryan. Gents, how are you? Hey, it's a party. We're here. I go into these episodes with optimism because we are getting close to football season. And when you have football season and when you have the best season for beers, which is fall or autumn, wherever you're from. I can't help but be excited. This is—it's the best beer season. Do you are you drinking any beers right now?
1: Speaking of fall, all I just know is that this is the time of year that Ryan loves to send me pictures of the foliage and the trees changing because I'm just, yeah, that's that's what he's into.
0: Oh, I bet. Yeah, I'm,
2: I'm a big foliage fan. How, how can you not be? It's 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 amazing. Uh Beers, not really. I mean, <laughs> that's Kenny's thing. He's like in mm-hmm. stouts and stuff. I mean, I'll drink one. If I'm drinking beer, it's probably going to be Miller Lite. I know that's not exciting. It's really crisp, refreshing, but I do like that Key Lime Sour we had at
1: uh, Gallant Fox. As you kind of hinted at, yeah, I'm a big barrel-aged beer fan. I, I caught the bug, you know, probably about the same time I was really, a little bit after I was getting into bourbon. It was in 2014, and I was just doing my usual bourbon hunting, kind of looking around for stuff on a day. Ended up going in the day Before uh, Black Friday, and just went into Liquor Barn and kind of just looking around for some stuff. And the guy goes, "Hey, you into barrel aged beers?" I was like, "Yeah, I like I like my you know my stouts and stuff like that." But I didn't, I did not as much as I do now. And he goes, "Hey, you should come back tomorrow. We're releasing Goose Island." And this is at Liquor Barn a very very long time ago. And I said, "Okay, sure. Like I'll come." I had no idea that people were like going to be there super early, waiting in line, trying to get. All the variants and crazy things. I showed up at, I don't know, 1 p.m. You got to remember, this was 2014. It's not as crazy as it was now. I showed up around 1 p.m. because I figured, you know, in the afternoon, I'll just I'll just go then. Go in, get my four-pack. I got two regulars and two coffees. And I said, hey, this is pretty good. And that's what kind of started me down the path of really getting to barrel-aged beers was two two regular brand stouts and two coffee stouts in 2014, and now I end up trying to get a bunch of them every single year. Really got into Prairie Artisan Ales. I think they're definitely towards the top of, if not my one of my favorites that have the amazing barrel aged beers. And I have only I think the Bartstown is one of the only ones that has come out with a a pretty good bourbon that's been secondary aged in a bourbon barrel aged beer. There's we've had a few of them and most of them just don't turn out as well as you'd think. They're a little bit too, I don't know. I'm gonna say chocolatey. There's just some funkiness to it that I was just never a big fan of. But there is there is an opportunity there for somebody to kind
0: of do good with it. But it's definitely an acquired finish. I feel like I should scrap the episode we were gonna go into because I was thinking about leading into this episode. Hey, we should talk about barrel aged beers. And now you now you you started with the history of Goose Island. But the new Goose Islands released. I'm not going to get into that now because I think we could save it for another episode. If you want to hear about barrel-aged beers as a topic, let us know. Shoot us an email, podcast at PursuitSpirits.com or on the posts when we promo the show for this episode. Let us know. But I do want to plug two things, which uh, you, these released are in Pursuit Palooza, but they're still available at our friends at Gallant Fox. If anyone is passing through Louisville, Make sure to swing by Gallant Fox. They still have bottles of both releases of barrel aged beers that were using Pursuit barrels. You have the Island Pursuit, which is uh, a, a milk stout with what? Vanilla and toasted coconut. And then the Late Night Snack, which is a milk stout with what? Cookies, right? Cookies and cream and
1: something? Basically Oreos. Yeah, that was my favorite one. I know Ryan preferred the other one. So. We've, we've got a few bottles ourselves. I'm really surprised they're kind of still around because it was, you know, 53 gallons of each. So there's there's a good amount, hefty amount there. I know we drained a lot of it when we were there, but they still have stuff in bottles. I haven't been there recently to see if it's on tap, but I guess they still have a few, few of them bottled sitting in the refrigerator around there. Yummy. You talk about how you like prairie so much. When we have some a
2: collaboration, we're doing prairie and... Uh Gosh, I forget the other name. I need to look it up.
1: Yeah, well we'll see where that where that where that goes. You know, that was one of those opportunities that we that you kind of came across where yeah. somebody said, Hey, we need some barrels. And now that we're dumping well, we dumped 105 in this last bottling run. And when you dump a bourbon barrel, you only have a few different options. One is you keep it and you do something with it, a lot of crafts or something, or you sell them to people that want to do crafts, you can give them to a brewery and potentially want to do a collaboration, which is exactly what we did. Or you sell them back on the open market where you get somewhere around, I don't know, $25 to $35 a barrel. And usually your bottler or somebody will come and pick them up and pay you back for the empty barrel and they'll go and resell it. But this time, yes, we got an op- opportunity to talk to somebody that was in Oklahoma that used to work for Prairie and started his own brewery. And when I told him the volume of barrels, he goes, "Let me go ahead and reach out to the guys over at Prairie." And so now, part of our barrels will be going to Prairie and part of them to this other brewery, American Solera, is what it's American called. Solera. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah so I'll, I'll be I'll be interested to. And now that you reminded me, I've got to send them a bottle because they said, "Hey, can we get a bottle when this is done?" And I said, "Sure, I'll we'll go ahead and get that over for you." Yeah. I'm excited for you because I know you look Prairie <laughs>
2: and uh, glad we could make this happen. You know? you know, so you get one of those 14% stouts and the Stiesel's can only have one of them. He's, he's, he hits the wall pretty yeah. hard. Uh, it, it's amazing how I can drink barrel-proof whiskey and not be affected. One barrel-aged stout and it's like I took
0: mushrooms or something. It's <laughs> like... Well, I sadly am not drinking a uh, barrel-aged stout, but I am drinking a new one from Monic. It is a Dunkel. I don't get Dunkels very often but again tis the season to to get into some of the delicious beers so again while it's not a beer episode podcast at pursuitsbeards.com let us know your favorite beer to drink during the fall football weather but tonight on the episode what I do want to dig into is all about bottle branding terminology I feel like we've we've we see this out there I kind of wanted to dissect if you all have choices of what you've decided to put on. Your, your pursuit bottles. I know there's some things probably legally you have to have on there. But beyond that, I think some of it's kind of buzzwordy. And I don't necessarily want to dive into what all the buzzworthy stuff is. I mainly want to say, what do you all think people are actually shopping for? What do you think they're buying for? Because a lot of people will say, hey, they're, they're marketed this way because that's what people want. Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. That's what they want. But do you think that's true? So let's, uh, let's kind of open the conversation up. Yeah, I, I feel you're, you're right
1: on a, definitely a few of those points. And there's definitely the buzzwords that tend to jump out at labels. And of course, the word Kentucky on it is an immediate standout for a lot of that. However, I do feel that the the tide may be shifting a little bit. Thanks to Ross and Squibb for that. <laughs> but that's because you see straight bourbon whiskey on the label. Most of us start immediately thinking, okay, well, it's not Kentucky. Because is there any other state out there that says state straight bourbon whiskey? There's really not many of them, maybe Texas. And that's about it because Texas is proud of Texas. And that's why they want to do that. But for the most part, you're not going to see that coming from a lot of places and maybe Tennessee to a degree. But for the most part, you don't either. It's mostly gonna be straight bourbon whiskey. And now that that sort of, I guess you can say association is starting to kind of dissipate a little bit you're going to start seeing people be a little bit more open to different categories hopefully looking at things and got getting scared of the word blended that's on the label i know when we first started this we've got we had a lot of feedback and people told us hey guys can you please get rid of the word blended on the front of your label or we say blended straight bourbon whiskeys or blended straight rye whiskeys and we say, no, we, we have to legally, it has to say that, or it says a blend of straight bourbon whiskeys, mostly for the longest time, people thought blended or blend was a bad connotation. And with good reason, because you used to use grain neutral spirits to have light whiskey, to have all these different things that uh, wouldn't necessarily fall into a straight bourbon whiskey category. So those are two like kind of big ones that I, I see off the top of my head there. And as people are starting to, to gravitate towards different things, I think it's going to be mostly around packaging and what people can start really resonating with. You know, there's, there's definitely some brands that made a name for themselves off of just cult following. Smoke Wagon is a great example of it. They've got a, a very unique and ornate d- uh, glass design that is able to draw consumers in. Um, but, th- you know, for the most part, you're going to have to have something that, people are going to look at, and it's going to have to pull them in. And the only thing that I can think that pulls in anybody, no matter what you're doing, you're walking down the shelves, the first thing you always notice is that, does it have a horse on the label? Because if it does, it usually sells. <laughs> so many, so
2: many horses. Yeah, it's funny, you know, Blend got such a, and people are like, oh, it needs to say small batch or, you know, ultra small batch or this or that. You know, that that's where you really need to like, and... I'm like, guys, girls, whatever, it's all a blend, you know, even E.H. Taylor is as a small batch is a blend of hundreds and thousands of barrels. Like, so it's, you know, people see the word small batch and think, oh, that's more authentic than a blended, you know, product like ours or whatever, not buzzwordy, but people feel safe with that. When in reality, they're all blends of, you know, hundreds of barrels and whatnot. But two, you kind of, packaging is such a weird thing like you know you got people who do such a great job elevating and making it more uh, a high-end item like blue run or this new brand called frank august what was that article they said sneakerizing the uh you the know the industry, industry the whiskey industry and, and whatnot or you have something like smoke wagon or are all the legacy brands who are more masculine and very old promoting like the west and guns and shooting and you know, cowboys and whatnot. And so it's... (laughs) Yeehaw. And so you have this demographic that 30 to 80, and it's not just white men that you're marketing to anymore. It's this whole broad, you know, diverse category now. And it's like, how do you resonate with all of them? And so that's what you kind of have to figure out with your brand, your packaging, and who you're trying to appeal to and whatnot. It's 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 an interesting time and you, you see all the... You go to a total wine and like, you know, there's hundreds of different suburban brands out there, and you're
1: like, "Holy hell, how do you stand out in the, in the midst of all these?" Yeah, I, I want to add on a little bit to what you said there of of looking at diversity and demographics and figuring out where do you land, because I I feel that it's impossible to sit there and try to market to every single demographic. I, I think that you have you have to have multiple teams that are dedicated to certain initiatives, ones that look at. Uh, you know, the, the different varying backgrounds and try to figure out, okay, how do we tailor a, a, an advertisement or a campaign directed to a particular group? How do we have people that are working for us or working in those departments that know what they're doing uh, to be able to talk to those different types of groups? Because it's going to be really hard for somebody like us to say, oh, yeah, we can really go ahead and try to tackle the, Fi- the Filipino market because we don't know anything about that. Um, you know, maybe love their food, but beyond that we wouldn't know how to market to them. So as a brand, it really takes scale at that point to figure out how do you figure out how do you tackle and market to different types of segments and whether it's female or whether it's male or whether it's black or white or anything like that. If I feel that you have the opportunity as well from a branding perspective to position yourself in a in a either a male or female category or, or one of or the one or the other, only because it's, it's a 50-50 split. You have a little bit of a, a good chance of hitting either side of the coin there. So you look at something like Penelope, Angel's Envy, both of those brands were created as a way to appeal more to a female consumer. However, we do know that you're going to have a more dominant male consumer at the end of the day, but they appeal more to the female consumer because of the packaging, because of the shape of the bottle, because of the name. And those are some of the big reasons why that they can break into those categories. So not only are they just looking at it, you know, they'll they'll already have a a male centric and dominated kind of influence, but now you have an easier on-ramp to try to hitting that female market at the same exact time. And honestly, it's just because of packaging. It's not because of the liquid. It's not because they did something special that their bourbon is better than anybody else's. It's because of what they did in their bottle design and how they were able to take that
0: and sort of, turn their messaging into it as well. Kind of on that same note then, I feel like there are things that, again, maybe they do trigger specifically a demographic, whether that's your your hyper nerd, it's your, I got to grab this before it's gone. Things like extra aged or things like hand selected. So I might be getting ahead of myself. I want to talk about that a little bit, but for the larger category, You know, are there things that you see that are mainly or not at all put on things for the amount of bottles that might reach the largest demographic out there, if you will? You know, what what are people throwing out there as the the widest net? And then we'll talk about what are people, you know, some of the ones I just mentioned as the most narrow net. Well, I want to just try that first word there of extra aged. Whenever you say that word extra aged... You begin to
1: think, well, what does the extra have to put on top? What was what was the original starting point? What what was your age? Because if you think about the, like the old beam decanters where they used to say aged for seventy two months, and you had one that said aged for ninety six months, you are like, whoa, this is extra aged, right? So there is there is a a, a fine line and a definition of what do you call extra aged? Even back, let's let's look at some of the best whiskey that's ever released you think of old Fitzgerald and you had very old Fitzgerald and you had very very old Fitzgerald and I don't think any of those were over 12 to 15 years so what do you consider something very old to from one person to the next and not only that is they didn't really put I think the tax stamps might have had some of the, the age statements on but from those part the the labels didn't so, the, the word extra age, I feel, is just very buzzwordy. And it's only something that's going to attract a customer, or contract a consumer to look at it one time. And maybe you'll you'll get them on the first time because it says, ah, extra aged or very old or something like that. But, you know, that's, I think that's a, a very buzzwordy term. Uh, and I don't know if it is th- going in the right direction, but I, <laughs> I just, I heard well, extra age and I was like, I feel like we need to tackle this one real quick. Well, age is like, I have mixed feelings about
2: age because, because we get well, old now, we're
1: like, oh, it's okay. Age is just a number. We're not that old yet.
2: Well, you know, having age statements and older bourbon at affordable prices, what brought whiskey back or, you know, bourbon back? And, and then, you know, kind of shot themselves in the foot. And then they dropped age statements and went, you know, said that it doesn't necessarily have to be 12 years or whatever to be the best representation. And I kind of think that's true, you know. And so... It feel like age statements automatically will sell product, you know, especially if it's a double-digit age. Consumers are like, just will freak out. Oh, 14-year Ross and Squibb, you know, got to get it. Doesn't care if it says... Heck, even Eagle Rare 10 is something that sells out right. relatively quickly. And so people in... Eagle Rare 10 is fine, but I'd much rather have a million different things than... Eagle Rare 10 and that have so much more flavor even at no age statement or a younger age statement. And so like age doesn't necessarily always equate to like good product, I guess. Whereas I think the consumer though feels that way and they, because they were trained that way probably four or five years ago, that age does mean quality because we're we're in that weird time where there's not a lot of age product <laughs> you know, that's extra aged or very, very old or whatever. So anytime you see a double digit age statement, it's like people go bananas. That is it. extra age now. A double digit is extra age nowadays. Yeah. But also too, to meet the, you're talking about how do you become a mass market product? You really, what I've, we've, or I've found, I think you really have to be sub um, $40 on the shelf. You really got to be in that like thirty five. 30 to be like a, you know, a million case brand. It's like, there's not a ton that I can't think of any that are 55, $60 that are doing million cases plus, you know. Is there
0: anything in that 35, 40 or below that, that they're using on the packaging to help sell it? You have a heritage along with it too. You look at something, Jim Beam
1: white label, you look at Evan Williams, you look at these brands that are, they're not, And it's it's hard to say they're they're not bottom shelf bourbons they're they're definitely they're really good bourbon at a very very low market price and they do that because it's a volume play they know that these people are buying these products not to have a you know one more bottle to add to their collection that they can go and they can taste against and try this one and get flavored nuances no it's a it's a party bourbon it's a it's a one that you want to go and you want to have fun you want to share it with people and you take it to party you grab a bottle you take it there you leave it there and it doesn't matter it's the same thing as when you bring a bottle of wine to a friend's house for a, a dinner knowing that it's going to get cracked and you're only going to get one one pour out of it you're not going to go spend 80 90 dollars on a bottle of wine hey you might not even spend 50 or you only even spend 30 you're probably going to spend 12 to 18 i think it's the same concept is that really price has a has a big factor into the buying consumer and buying habit because they want to get the best value, what they're gonna what they're gonna get, and what they do is they look across the wide array of shelves out there, and they already start looking at the prices. Price is probably the first thing that they look at, and when they see thirty to thirty five dollars, that's a pretty good price range for some relatively budget bourbons. It's different nowadays because really the only people that can fit into that category as Ryan had said, are the ones that are these big mass market ones. It's really hard for anybody to come in, especially off a source brand, you can't do it. But unless you have the economies of scale to be able to get your product that low on the price point on the price shelf. Heck, gosh, I think mean, we talked about it one time, what Evan Williams or somebody, something from Heaven Hill was, gosh, think of Heaven Hill white label. What was it selling for $14 on the shelf at one point? Oh, it's lower than that. It was like $9.99. <laughs> $9.99? <laughs> yeah. They had, to, they had to been selling that the distributor, for $4. Or maybe $5 something like that. It's it, I mean that's insane. It's insane to be able to get that that level of of price because in our packaging alone we're spending $3.25 $3.23 20, right now. So they're able to sell a full bottle of bourbon at $4 or $5. So it's an insane amount of scale that you have to have to be able to get a price point that low. But I'm just hopeful that the the consumer is beginning to change their mind and if you're listening to this podcast you are definitely one of those newer types of consumers that are you're not you're not going out you're not just buying uh, wild turkey 101 and and Beam white label and you are you're expanding your horizons you're looking at other things on the shelf you're experimenting and, and looking through different rickhouses and mash bills and all this sort of stuff that you're just not going to just buy a bottle just to buy a bottle and that's just what we need we need the consumer to be able to start educating his his or her friends making sure that they are getting into it and just growing the category as a whole because as you do that you're going to see these these other brands start flourishing especially in that mid-tier category in that mid-tier category it's it's a hard one to sort of play in because yes could we have come out and just sold our product for a hundred dollars a bottle and been less transparent about everything Sure. And we would have fit more of a premium tier category. We just felt that we belonged in a slightly younger, not younger, sorry, a slightly lower tier of price only because we know our audience. Our audience are very savvy bourbon consumers. We're not going to be able to just slip one over with them because we have some fancy packaging and tell a nice story. But instead, we really want the whiskey to speak for itself. And we feel that we can really excel and play well in that price point too it's with those you know those uh huge brands they have it seems like the
2: ones that are successful have like really you know i think of like bullet um and like elijah craig you know they're in that gosh bullet's like
1: 25 29 a bottle Elijah Craig's stand, the same, I stand, <laughs> and i stand corrected you're right bullet was able to build a big brand off sourcing and they did it <laughs> but they did it years ago when
2: nobody yeah wanted yeah to buy this stuff yeah even though they were in that price point, they had some like elevated packaging. You know, it, it was the bullet packaging was fantastically done. Raised glass embossing, you know, this and that cork whatnot, or no, I don't know. Does bullet have a cork?
1: Uh, yes, but they also had great product placement as well when it came to media and everything like that too.
2: What we're trying to do with being, you know, transparent and giving information, and you see others like this, like Barstown Bourbon Company, you know, and I think it's one of their the fusion discovery series, they actually like they list out the percentages of the blend and whatnot and very transparent about where they're sourcing the the liquid from. Um I feel like that's the the new wave of whiskey consumers and that's how you can really differentiate yourself from those legacy brands that are great value, but you're kind of get the same thing every time. It's nothing new and exciting and adventurous for a whiskey geek to explore different mash bills and different blends and different, you know, flavors that they're not, that they're used to with the old legacy brands. And so how do you convey that message to consumer without like flooding your label with a bunch of nonsense, <laughs> you know, that somebody would get overwhelmed. I think that's what we found balanced within our, our packaging, but, you know, we're always learning and growing, you know, if for instance, didn't think it'd be a good idea to have batch numbers, you know, for... The first couple of releases and then the market spoke and said, hey, uh, we really want to know the difference between each batch and each release. And we're like, well, you're right. Okay. And so now that's we, we have the batch code system and consumers like that because it kind of gives some identity to each batch. And they'd be like, well, I really like that batch over this batch to compare the batches, you know, this and that. Yeah, you're just trying to. We're, we're growing and learning
0: how we can appeal to our demographic and our market. Do you think that it is a deciding factor to anybody whether the bottle says it is sweet mash or sour mash? Absolutely not. I, I think that has no – I don't think that matters. That goes
1: into the story at the distillery when they're talking about their process. I don't – this might have been something because, yes, you would have seen this on some old-timey like Ezra labels – and you saw sweet mash whiskey, and you saw a lot of that sort of stuff, or sour mash whiskey. I'm sorry, it says sour mash, and especially Michter is actually dis- displays it loudly and proudly on their label. It says sour mash whiskey, sour mash bourbon. I feel that as an, a consumer, they're going to see that, and they're just going to be a either terrified and confused, or they're just not going to care. And so if it's one of those things that you've got to shield a lot of this stuff from the consumer because a lot of that stuff is it's a science it's a reason you do this is because it's based off of science of whether you want uh some back set in there because it regulates the ph levels when you're going through the next fermentation process versus something that you want to have a clean start and uh, pretty much a lot of that i feel is better suited during an, a, a walk through and a tour because they can now explain the process if you were to just pick up a bottle and it said sour mash whiskey. And you take it to the counter and you can say, "Can you please explain what this, what this is?" But the guy would go, or gal would go, "Oh God, here we go. I, I don't even know where to start here." And you probably just make something up and be wrong anyway. So I don't, I don't feel that putting that on the label is is. It might be doing you good if you think that like this is something you can hang your hat on. But for the most part, it's it's just a it's just another part of the process that most consumers probably. Don't know about nor
0: care about yeah I think one of the things that gets tricky with that is because I think I've seen some bottles that will just put that on there because that's part of the process which I feel like a lot of distilleries it is but then there are some products that are labeled for like sour mash whiskey which is not necessarily indicating that it's bourbon or or rye specifically and I feel like the fact that you can see that language and we see this with other things too but you can see some similar language across multiple products and I feel like it can be confusing to the end user when that's happening. And this also might be an artifact of old school marketing. Let's, let's take today.
1: Maybe, maybe this is maybe sweet and sour mash is the, the, is yesterday's of toasted because today you see toast on a label, people go crazy for it. And I'm not a history buff. I don't know. I don't know all the labels, but if we, you know, look back 30, 40 years ago, maybe that's what consumers cared about. Maybe they did see it and people aligned with it. They said, I only like my sweet mash whiskey, or I only like my sour mash whiskey. So today is I only like my toasted whiskey. So it could just be something that it's just an artifact of what was marketing decades ago. But then again, I'm making this up. So definitely don't take my word. Well, and
2: 95% of them do sour mash. So if yes, you're, that's true. If you're marketing is sweet mash, like you're just trying to be different, trying to you know have a unique angle against the the masses which
1: wilderness trail does sweet mash hard truth does sweet mash and they both make fantastic whiskey yeah
2: and peerless does too and it all but sour mash is just equally as good i think too if you're willing to go through the extra steps you know to put on your label
1: then you deserve it and all we need is now pat to come back on and tell us why we're wrong
0: i know good old pat heist okay i'm gonna go down a series of thoughts here and and there's a little bit of talking points to each of these but it's it's Spins off of, Kenny, what you were saying a little bit ago, when you were talking about very old, and you're talking about the old Fitzgeralds. Now, I'm curious, do you think that this is an aid in a selling point for, let's say, very old Barton? This is a product that is lower end, affordable whiskey. Do you think that people are grabbing that with the name of very old Barton, expecting it to be, uh, you know, the best of both worlds, an older whiskey that they're getting in a very cheap package. Do you remember when Very Old Barton used to have that prominent number six on the top of it? <laughs>
1: I do. I don't think it's there anymore, is it? No, so, definitely not. But they still kept the name Very Old Barton. But here's the other thing is, I don't remember there just being an old Barton or a regular Barton. They just had a very old Barton. So and I, it was always called V.O.B. for the longest time ever since I've been drinking bourbon. They always used to say, I'm going to get a handle of V.O.B. And that's just what it was. I feel that's just a, it's a marketing play at the end of the day. We, all of us here know that six years is not what you would consider very old or old. It's a very good age for a rounded out bourbon, but it's a, it's a marketing play at the end of the day. And if they're able to slap a big six on it and people are okay with it, okay. But the other thing is, is that there is not the, that is a, that is an average consumer that's probably going to go and be buying a lot of those. Anybody that's listening to this has probably been down the VOP VOB path, and they're ready to try something different. So they saw it, they bought it, they tried it. They're ready to try something new, and they're probably with the understanding now that uh, a six-year-old probably doesn't necessarily mean you know very old at this point. That is a, a typical age for most bourbon products that are on the market, and it's just something that could probably be considered. Uh, Just middle of the road in regards of just what the age statement is. I'm Looking at Heaven Hill Green Label and it says,
2: has a six on the top and it says old style bourbon, you know, old style, not just old, old style. What's a style of old?
1: (laughs) I don't know. It's a good question.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm pretty sure they've been uh, making
0: whiskey the same way (laughs) for (laughs) a couple hundred years. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you guys went that direction with it because kind of leading off that point I was hoping to talk about expectation. So given, given that we just talked about with Heaven Hill, Very Old Barton, do you think that having that to maybe a new bourbon consumer, say very old, which we would say is, it's acceptable. It's not very old. But to someone who's new is picking that up, is it setting a baseline that that is very old, that it is old style, which you would think if you're wanting to use marketing, that's helpful for you. You want people to assume that's the baseline because you can go, you can really exceed expectations if that's the baseline because you know the potential for flavor is so high. However, is is
1: that a good thing? It's a good question. Only because if you are getting into this and you're buying some of these old styles, these, these very old v- VOBs is that even when you're getting into this hobby, you usually end up starting with a very low price point the first bottle you buy is probably not a 50 or 100 dollar bottle that's going to be in the 15 to 30 dollar category and so you have this preconceived notion of, of what this is but i hope they, they don't go into it and think that the name is going to have a connotation of oh this is what i'm supposed to expect from this type of bourbon at this type of age or anything like that and the the next logical move for anybody is to kind of just start experimenting and have a Sherpa or somebody that can show you sort of what the next phase is, like what is the next uh, types of bourbons that you need to be able to try to be able to kind of move to that that next phase. And so I don't feel that the name is going to set a bad precedence as somebody that's getting into it to say, well, gosh, you know, I had this very old Barton, but this one that has a horse on top doesn't say old or vary on it whatsoever. But people are talking about it. Why? It's not that old. But that's the thing: is that it's the same exact age. It's just a marketing, and it's one of those types of situations where hopefully you have somebody in your life that can help you sort of read between the lines and and cut through a lot of that mess so you can you can start understanding exactly how you know fifty percent of the bottle actually goes into marketing. Yeah, and I think that's what the older legacy brands have in their
2: you know, that's in their wheelhouse, they can really provide value and safe, like a safe purchase that you can purchase something at $35 or less, and it's not going to, it's not going to disappoint you, you know, whereas there's a lot of things you can take a chance on at 55, 65, 75, hundred dollars plus where it's risky, you know, it's risky and it's, a lot of times you can be disappointed, you know, with the, the end product. If if you are gonna be going against these, you know, legacy brands, you have to deliver on the quality of the product. You have to have something when they take a chance on you that when they try it, they're gonna come away surprised or, you know, expectations were blown away. They were like, Well, I've been used to this, you know, standard Kentucky profile, but I tried this fifty-five, sixty five, seventy-five dollar new Product that just really blew me away and offers so much more flavor. I think that's when they get excited. But if you fail
0: to deliver on that chance that they take, you're just screwed. Well, so given given kind of what we've talked about a little bit, again, in, in case there are people here that are maybe going down the path, they're not necessarily consumers. They're they're brands. They're they're startups. They're considering being a startup. You know, when it comes to packaging. And what you're saying about it, you would say, aside from maybe legal things you'd have to have on there, you think that the consumer is going away from anything that's really going to be a big deciding factor for them there on the label versus another product necessarily. You know, maybe to help frame that question in a slightly different way, where I was going to go after that is for a brand, maybe that's not from Kentucky. You know, is there any words of encouragement you have for them of how they should, Present their bourbon, rye, whiskey, whatever it might be, to help better reach a customer, or is it just whatever, kid? <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I don't know. Packaging is important, but it's—I don't think it's as important these days. There's so much, I guess, options and offerings on the shelf. It's like I, I don't know if packaging alone will get them to pick your brand. I think you have to have a full, like, education. Like you have to have somebody on. Social media or YouTube talking about you, somebody that people trust. You have to be, if you're in the aisle, I see people pulling up their phones and looking up brands, you know, to see, is this, does somebody else trust this brand other than me? Shelf talkers, you know, help a lot winning awards. I just don't know if packaging alone really gets consumers
0: excited anymore. I don't know. Is well, that-, that in and of itself is a great answer. That, that, that helps kind of frame this whole episode of, you know, is that actually important right now? So I'll I'll go on the opposite side. I still think packaging
1: is, is very important. Yeah, you're right. I've seen it myself. You'll go and people will be going, oh, did did the bourbon junkies on YouTube review this? Does Breaking Bourbon have a review out there? What's it say? And yeah, you do have to have a little bit of that. And part of the the issue that happens is that it, it, all, it's, it starts from sort of like an, an inside out way of thinking is that you had to kind of break into the enthusiast, the media crowd first, and just be able to establish something there, be able to have some sort of written article, some sort of review, something that sort of kind of gets the wheels in motion and kind of gets the the engine turning, get the engine going there. But once you get beyond there, it's as bad as it sounds is that you have to quit caring about the whiskey enthusiast because those are the ones that are going to kind of, think you're hot today and forget about you tomorrow. And you've got to be able to break out into the larger market. So yes, you get a few of the first written articles about you, but then after that, how are people even going to notice and how are they going to even look at a label and say, oh, let me go look this one up real quick. Because if your packaging is bad, they're not going to look at it anyway. So you have to have some sort of flashy or thing that catches your eye when it comes to the packaging whether it's rounded shoulders or a lot of gold foil or a clear glass topper I don't know whatever horse. it is <laughs> or anything I mean everything it, if you put a horse on the label you're going to be okay I think that's the that's the that's the consensus of what I've I've realized at this point but any way that you look at it packaging is still going to play a very important role because the packaging also plays into the story and the things that you have to tell but at the end of the day, I just, I just feel that marketing is is going to be 50% that goes in the bottle and packaging has to be the, something that has to catch the consumer's eye. It's still a very important aspect of, of what it is to be able to get something out on the market. And it can't look like you just put something that you printed off your, your printer at home and stuck it on a side of a wine bottle and said, hey, this will sell. It just has <laughs> to be something. But, you know, I, I will say at the very beginning, I remember when we were start doing our labels for the fir- very first time. And our packaging designer said, what kind of, you know, foiling do you want in this? You know, embossing, debossing. And we took all that for granted. All the stuff that you go and you pick it. Just go to your whiskey shelf right now and go and grab a few bottles and rub your fingers across the labels and start feeling where the intricacies are of what actually went into that label itself of, of embossing, or should I say debossing or embossing at that point of different types of words that are popping in or popping out on the label, which ones have some foil underneath of it that use hot stamping. All of that is a crazy amount of thought and detail that goes into it that for the longest time, even before we started, we took it all for granted. We said, I never even cared about any of this stuff. And that's true. As long as it looks good, but it doesn't look like it just printed off your inkjet printer at home, I think that you're going to be okay. You've just got to have that happy medium of going overboard or not doing
2: enough. And I think that's what I meant. I mean, obviously, you have to have a presentable package and look good. But that only gets you so far because there's so much offerings. I I think a lot of the original questions were about, you know, buzzwords or what you put on labels, what kind of information you put on there. And I'm not, I'm not sure that that necessarily matters. Obviously, you have to have a, bu- a wonderful design, a good looking bottle. But I, I just don't think, you know, the old timey bottles who said like old this or, you know, I'm looking at like. E.H. Taylor says, let the label tell the truth or something, you know, and it's like all these like old things that they use back in the day. I, I just don't know that that matters anymore. If you have a good package and then you also have presence where people trust you, then that's where the things will align to get people to buy you. Well, I guess we got to
1: figure out where people can start trusting us.
2: That's true. <laughs> it's they're getting there, you know, <laughs>
0: Well, guys, you heard it here first. Hand-selected Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey is out. A full package is in. (laughs) That's what it is. (laughs) Full package. Obviously, packaging is
2: important, and Kenny obsesses over the finer details. And I'm so thankful that him and Brian, our designer, do that, because it is important to have a presence on the shelf and look good. But where I'm obsessed with is what's inside the bottle and the liquid and making sure it delivers that when somebody takes that chance on you they come back again because you only get one chance they try it and it's not good if the liquid's not good then they're not they're not going to buy again and what i'm trying to build is lifelong customers by providing a unique flavor profile that they can appreciate and they can't get anywhere else and so that's what we're focused on at least i am kenny can
0: do packaging Guys, a fun conversation. I think it's definitely something that people dig into, whether it's they're going to Reddit about it, they're, they're looking up on YouTube, they're trying to figure out, do these things matter? And again, yeah, I think we do have a listener base that is maybe a little bit more in depth, but just in general, you know, there might be people coming to this podcast, they're just interested in the brand, and maybe they don't have as much education. And so it's kind of interesting for them to see that some of these things on here might not necessarily be an indication of quality or flavor to kind of dive into that or to find somebody uh, to help them along the journey. So I appreciate you diving into that tonight. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Be sure to subscribe, like us on the channels, share it with a friend. If you find it helpful or insightful, you know, those things will really help us kind of grow the brand. If you have questions for the guys, if you have show topic ideas, be sure to submit those podcast at pursuitspirits.com we'd love to comb through those and maybe bring those out on a future episode thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of behind the pursuit and until next time we'll see you all later